Morning, everybody. Good to see you. We are, if you can believe it, in our very last week of the book of Exodus, or the book of Leviticus. I know, it's so sad. It's so sad, isn't it, that I can't even remember the name of the book we're in. Um, we're actually not really finishing. We're just at running out of time. And so um, we're going to be looking at the whole final section of the book of Exodus today. If you remember, there are kind of three thematic sections. The first is about the offerings at the tabernacle. Then there's the dietary and hygiene laws and, and then Day of Atonement kind of tacked on the end. And then the last part is what's often called the holiness code, which will be our, our focus for today. Um, we had about 50 folks here this week to hear Rabbi Glickman who came to teach us, it's so good. And one of the things he emphasized was that in the Jewish tradition, kind of one of the main themes they glean from Leviticus is that um, God wants the children of Israel to have an, an intimate relationship with God. That's really the whole point of it, that God wants to live in constant friendship with these people, just to have it be a normal aspect of their everyday lives. This is why God comes to dwell at the center of their um, camp in this, this mishkan, a tent of meeting or tabernacle, and this fire cloud that pops and sizzles with the presence and power of God all day, every day, all night long. And, but it kind of, this kind of freaks them out a little bit. It's, it's unnerving. God's presence is a crisis for the people of God. In fact, remember, Moses won't even go inside the tent. That's the very beginning of, of the book. God, Vaikra, calls out to Moses from inside the tent. It's, it's unnerving to the people to have this much proximity um, to God. It's overwhelming. They would rather kind of keep God at a safe distance, which I personally know nothing about ever wanting to do this, right? <laughs> who, who doesn't do this? Keep God at, at, at just kind of a safe distance, like, like I will all do my thing, kind of serve myself, and you do your thing, which is kind of to serve myself. Like, these are, these are the, this is how I want this to go. And the source of the crisis for the Hebrew people is this word in Hebrew, kadosh, um, holiness, but which literally means set-apartness. God is set-apart, not a thing like other things, but is more like that from which all things come. God is also set-apart, like not like the gods of Egypt, but in, in its own category, kadosh, holy, set-apart. And asking these people to... Be holy, kadosh, as well. Um, in, in that they have the special calling to mediate the presence of God to the world like a nation of priests. The problem is they don't feel near ready to do this. And, and in fact, they're not ready. They are not holy. They're mostly just afraid of, you know, the nearness of God, afraid of the desert, afraid of Egypt, afraid of the wilderness, afraid of all kinds of things. So God... Um, comes to find them as they are kind of in hiding, trying to keep God at arm's length, and gives them these korban. Remember this word, korban? It's, it's um, offering, um, sometimes sacrifice. It's literally, korban means a bringing near thing. God gives them a bringing near thing that will help bring them near. The example I always, I always think of in my mind about korban is we used to have this friend who, or we, a friend when they were younger, they had, their first child was the first grandchild in the family. And it was a kind of a farm family. And the little boy 
loved to go out to the farm with Grandpa. He'd like go on the tractor or go in the pickup truck or just tinker around the shop. And the Grandpa would always give the boy a bolt with a, a little nut that would screw on it. And he would say, keep this, put, the, put it in your pocket. And then just every few minutes, he would say, you got your bolt? And the little kid would like pull it out, show it to him, and then put it back. And then they would go on about their business. And, and eventually, he would find, like at the very end, find something that needed bolting together. And the kid felt like he was doing something. It's a total genius move. Because the whole time, the boy felt like he was doing something important. And in fact, he was. It just wasn't the bolt. It was spending time with Grandpa, getting to know him, how to, how to work, how to care for things, how to do work. The bolt really didn't matter. It was just a core bond. It was a bringing near thing. And the core bond were like that, that bolt. They, they made the people of God feel like they belonged with Yahweh, because they did. And so they would come out and get to know God and learn what it means, you know, learn about life and the world and what it means to be human. And so that whole first section of Leviticus is all about what happens at this tabernacle and how these people can, Korban, can draw near, bring near with these bringing near things. And then the next section, the middle section, was about all these dietary and hygiene laws and learning to distinguish badal, the, the difference between clean and unclean, pure and unpure, that we had this word tema, which is a, a big Jewish word. It comes into play. Um, um, tama is not sinful. It doesn't mean wrong or sinful. It just means you've come into contact with sort of this boundary between things that make for life and things that make for death. So you need to be careful and intentional with how you proceed. Make sure your trajectory is moving back toward life. And so by treating this, this kind of tabernacle with reverence and, and you're coming and going from the tabernacle with reverence, they're learning how to treat their lives and relationships. And they're coming and going in those things with, with a kind of reverence. And so the first section is about what happens right at the tabernacle. The second is like a, a layer out. It's about how you come and go from this place, diet and hygiene, Yom Kippur also. And, and then the final section is what's called the holiness code. And it moves another layer out. And it's just about everyday life. It's like normal, common, mundane things. Home and family, marriage and sex, neighbors and foreigners, crops and lands, rules and punishments, play and delight, Sabbath and resting, celebration and feasting, social and economic justice. It's all in, in the holiness codes. And it's, it's really about structuring their time and their, their fortune, their wealth, and their land, their economy, their relationships in such a way that everything and everyone can flourish and find wholeness, this, this idea of shalom, peace. And so in a sense, in a sense this, is, this section really is it's well-named. It's all about holiness but it's, it's kind of got a twist. In fact, this is one of the things Rabbi Glickman emphasized so well. He said, to the Hebrew imagination, it's nonsense to even conceive of holiness in individual terms, individualistic terms. Holiness is a team sport, always. It's just not a category that works with radical individualism because it's about shalom, which is relational. It's all about right relating to everything else. It's always social, holiness is. And so if you think about, like, for instance, the, those crucial 
passages that I think everybody should memorize, um, like Exodus 19, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, or Leviticus 19, you shall be holy for I, your God, the Lord, am holy. Both times, um, Rabbi Glickman said that you is second person plural. We don't really have a word for that in English other than y'all. It's y'all. Y'all shall be holy. Y'all shall be a kingdom of priests because holiness is a social category, not an individualistic one. Um, Rabbi Baruch Levine, who wrote the JPS commentary we've been using a lot, he says that these passages convey the idea basic to biblical religion that holiness cannot be achieved by individuals alone, no matter how elevated, pure, or righteous. righteous. It can be realized only through the life of the community acting together. And of course, there are individuals coming to play, but the first question around holiness is always more like, what kind of community do we need to be in order to welcome the presence of a holy God into every aspect of our life so that our common life bears witness to the reality of this God in, in the world? That's the question. And only when we can answer that question as a community can we even think about our own personal lives. And even then, the question isn't, how can I be holy? It's more like, what kind of person do I need to be that I can participate in this holy community? It's really what it means. So holiness is, isn't really about personal piety, which is what we probably all grew up thinking it meant. That's really not it. It's set apart to be part of this community that has been set apart to do life with this God who is set apart. That's really what holiness is about. And so this, this third section of Leviticus, it, it's trying to see the way everything in life is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. There isn't like sacred and, spirit and profane or sp religious and secular. It, those things don't even compute. Everything is spiritual. And Everything we do shapes us and has to be then considered by virtue of its relationship to God. So for instance, chapter 17, the very beginning of the Holiness Codes, it goes into all this detail about why you can't make a sacrifice, like an, a sacrifice an animal outside the camp. You're just not allowed to do this. Why, why would they care that much about this? Isn't it the thought that counts, right? It's... But they're saying, you can't just go off on your own and do some private religious thing. This isn't an individualistic kind of faith. It's always corporate. It's always communal. Even if you wanted to just butcher an animal and eat like for your family with, for private use, you had to first bring it to the temple or to the, the tabernacle because everything is spiritual, including your diet. So at the center of their spiritual life is not the individual. This is so counterintuitive for us. It's the community. It's social. So don't go off doing some private religious sacrifice. That was their deal. Come to the group. And so this whole last section is really addressing these communal concerns. So for instance, chapter 18 is about sex and family, obviously a social concern. Chapter 19 is about Sabbath and neighboring and immigrants. Chapter 20 is about consequences for when you violate the rules of the community. 21, 22 is about the rules for priests who are leading corporate worship, right? 
Um, 23 is about these big seven feasts that they would have seven times a year. The whole, the whole nation would observe these things. Chapter 24 is about how to um, bake bread and set the table and light the lamps for this symbolic shared meal, communal social meal that they share with Yahweh at the tabernacle. Um, 26, or 25 is about Sabbath laws, sabbatical and jubilee. This stuff's about social justice. We'll get into that more. Um, 26 is about more punishments and rewards for violating community. 27 is about buying and selling houses and livestock and, and, and land. And this, all of this holiness code section gets down to the granular aspects of life. I, I mean, you've probably run into this. Like, if there's, if there's some random Jewish law that somebody has quoted to you sometime and you thought, that's really weird, it probably comes from this section. Like, they're all, in all the weirdest ones are in these things. But you kind of have to just keep in mind the bigger picture that God had just liberated them from bondage in Egypt and then was sending them out to, to Canaan among the pagan religions, well-established cultures, and didn't just want them to go from one problematic situation to another. And so God um, has them enter into this biblical pattern, one that we'll see over and over. This is the pattern. There's some old orientation, like in Egypt, um, organized around empire that results in bondage. Or another old empire or orientation in Canaan, organized around paganism that will kind of as a result of, of tribalism and idolatry. And what God wants for them is a whole new or, uh, orientation in the promised land, organized around wisdom in the, in the presence of God that will result in kind of shalom, right organizing of the world. But to get them, you see the gap, to get them from that old orientation to the new one, God takes them through a season of disorientation in the wilderness and organizes them around this brand new Jewish tradition that will result in a kind of ethical monotheism, which was a brand new thing in recorded history. Like a truly new human orientation in all of the world. New imagination about who God is. Creator, that's Genesis. Liberator, that's Exodus. And then in Leviticus, now a God who is this constant companion and teacher about how to live life. How to, you know, just about life in the world and what it means to be human. And, and in order to do this, God will ask them to adopt this whole new set of like habits and rhythms and practices. These codes, these ways of living together to regulate you know, the relationship to God and themselves and, the, and each other and, and the world around them. And this will be formed in them through this long season of disorientation. And I, I put this up here to have us look at it because this will happen over and over in your lifetime to you. And so it's just important for us to be able to recognize when, if we feel like we're in a season of disorientation, what that means is God is moving us towards something new that we can't yet imagine. And our job really is to try in that time to formulate new habits. That's what we're looking for in disorientation, new habits that can open us up to this new thing God is doing. So that's what, that's what the Holiness Code, these, this last section is. All these new habits and rhythms and practices, many of them very strange as you heard in the reading before, um, stemming from ancient culture. So we can't just like start following them, like cut, cut and paste them into our daily routines. Like don't mix dairy and meat. 
in one, that means no cheeseburgers, man. Like, I'm out. Like, I'm an atheist if that's the deal. Um, or don't wear t clothes with two kinds of fabric. Like, that's all of our clothes now. So we're, we're not going to just try to, like, start following them. We need to look for the kernel of wisdom contained in them. So, like, for instance, I was loving that earlier. Um, Leviticus 19.28. Don't cut gashes in your flesh when someone dies or tattoo yourselves. Who was like, oh, dang. Like, that ship sailed. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's random. Well, these, these practices were part of the Canaanite religion. And so the wisdom for this is not don't get tattoos. It's, it's really don't join in these religious cultic practices um, that involve things like self-mutilation or, or conjuring up the dead, which is what the, the cutting was about. You can distill it. But then other ones, you kind of you follow. Like verse 17, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, the church still holds to this. Jesus quoted that directly. And, and so we're not really cutting and pasting that over. We're just saying this still holds, right? So we're looking for the wisdom within the codes. We're trying not to just cherry pick the ones we like, but to find the wisdom in all of them. Does that make sense? That's what we're trying to do. And, and to do this, I think part of what we do is we try to see how they fit with major Jewish themes and for us, major Christian themes as well. And so I want to suggest three of these for our, our, our rest of our time here. Um, we could do others, but I think these three major themes are still important to this day. The first is the theme of family and neighboring. It's all over the holiness code. And, and so one of the things we're going to pay attention to, with, especially with these three, and it's part of why I think these rise above the others, is that they always come to us in sets of seven. You know, there's been sevens like all along in the, in, it's all over the Torah, but especially in the book of Leviticus. And so they're going to be grouped in, in sevens. Anytime that's happening, we know that's a Genesis thing, like seven days of creation. This is about structuring and ordering the world rightly. So it, in, for instance, in chapters 18, 19, and 20, there are all these passages that talk about family and neighboring. And it, they're kind of, that, those are a triad, those three, they fit together. And the, it's all got these sets of seven um, laws embedded in it. So for instance, chapter 18 has two sets of seven laws. Chapter 19 has three sets of seven. Um, chapter 20 has um, two sets, again, of seven laws. So you add them together, that's seven sets of seven laws. Like, this is not an accident. Um, so it's, seven, if you remember, is a number of completion or fullness, and this is like a double seven. So it's saying this teaching is com a complete and full teaching about how to live a complete and full life. That would, that would be a good kind of, to the Hebrew imagination, good way to read that. I want to look at just a few of these that have to do with um, family and neighboring, and these are all from 19. Verse 3. Each of you must respect your mother and father. So this is almost straight out of the Ten Commandments, right? And in fact, all of the Ten Commandments are mixed in here, some in more than one form. And this is about the importance of honor toward mom and dad in a family. The, the family depends on this. Verse 30, 32 says, you shall rise before the aged and show deference to the old. So the elderly in this social community, are not to be discarded. They're to be respected. Even if they don't seem so useful to us anymore in our economy, they still are. So they need honor. 
So they're holding the importance of family. Verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the, this is um, very actually subversive then and now. that The neighbor relation isn't meant to be competition. It's supposed to be um, cooperation, love. Not gaining advantage, but mutuality and respect and care. This uh, medieval rabbi, um, Akiba, said, this is the central principle in the Torah. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a big statement. And in fact, when, when Jesus was asked, this is, that's what he answered, right? Verse 13, you shall not defraud your fellow Israelite. You shall not commit robbery. The wages of a laborer shall not remain with you until morning. In other words, pay them when you're supposed to pay. So relationships among neighbors are not com about competitive advantage. You're not trying to pull one over on each other. Be fair to those who work with you. Pay what you owe them on time. Verse 14, you shall not insult the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind. The word insult there is really um, closer to treat lightly or um, treat, uh, see as of little importance. That's, that's what that word means. They're, they're just training themselves to see the value in everyone, especially um, paying attention to those who struggle. Verse 9 and 10, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. So this was the custom of gleaning where they didn't harvest the edge of the field where things got thin and they didn't go back and pick up stuff they dropped so that the poor could come behind and, and gather them up and, and not starve. So it was basically a form of food assistance for those on the margins. This is protected in the law. You have to do this. You have to make these provisions to care for those who are struggling. Verses 33 and 34. This is a huge one. When strangers reside with you in your land, you shall not wrong them. The strangers who reside with you shall be to you as your citizens. You shall love the stranger as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That word in Hebrew for stranger is ger, which means immigrant. That word means immigrant. And they were commanded to treat immigrants like full citizens. And it repeats that line that the rabbi just says at the center of the Torah, only it replaces neighbor with, with immigrant. You shall love the immigrant as yourself, it says. Why? Because you were immigrants. You know what this is like. I mean, for us, this is, this is a, a radical idea because everybody has been an outsider at some point and it sucks the only way to become an insider is if someone will show you um some hospitality you have to wonder if christians have read their bibles like sometimes when you see something like this love the immigrant as yourself like this is something we can carry into regular life all these, these passages, and many more, make the importance of family and neighboring um, kind of rise to the top. You can just kind of see this embedded in Christ's teaching. They will, you'll, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So this value of neighboring and family, it's of paramount importance if we want to be holy, if we want to bear witness to the reality of God in our common life. The next theme is the importance of play and delight. This might be kind of 
left field for some of you, but play into light is the serious business of the kingdom of heaven and this, the social body of those who follow after God. Um, Leviticus, again, this is connected to these patterns of seven. So every seven days you observe a Sabbath, and then seven times a year you observe these festivals. And in both of those, all you're supposed to do is just play and delight in the world. I mean, Sabbath keeping is one of those things that we've kind of said that was for them, not for us. And Christians have basically thrown Sabbath keeping out, out the window. I think it could be the most important practice. Like when, when I start talking to somebody about following God, I start with Sabbath. It's number one for me. This is where we start. It, 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 I think the most important thing to learn how to do, and we should all be doing that. I have to fight constantly to do it. And I believe as much as anybody of how important it is, it's just the whole world is organized to stop it. And it, it was a problem in, in Jewish life because their laws about it became super cumbersome and nobody could pull it off. Um, uh, probably our most common idea when, when you hear Sabbath, what we probably think is um, don't do work, right? But that's not quite the heart of it. Um, Walter Brueggemann, this Old Testament scholar, he says, Sabbath isn't the cessation of work. It's the cessation of restlessness. And I think that's right. Just a day to stop freaking out about, you know, what your list that you got to do and what you're worried about and the anxiousness and all that. Just take one day and just say, I'm moving that to the edge. And for this day, I'm just going to play with family and friends and just delight in the world. Slaves in Egypt, they can work seven days a week, but, but I'm part of the people of God and we know how to play and delight in the world. I'm not sure if there could be a more important thing to learn how to do. We're just so pressed to think our worth as people is connected to what we produce and consume, and it's not. And only a people who protect this Sabbath one day a week just to live it up can be reminded they're not slaves. They're not what they consume and produce. So Sabbath is primarily about play and delight. Just doing stuff that, that brings you joy. And it's supposed to be a communal practice. So a lot of this ends up being together. And, and, and so like if your spouse, like on this day, tries to get you to, I don't know, take out the trash or do laundry, you say, I do not delight in laundry. So <laughs> stick it, like I'm not doing that. We'll do something fun, right? Our kids growing up, we, would, we did this so much. Sunday afternoons would come, and we would um, shove the couch right up next to the television, like way too close, breaking all the rules of how far you're supposed to be from the TV, and just put crazy junk food in front of us and watch Harry Potter movies and just delight in the goodness of Harry Potter and being together, right? I mean, when I think Sabbath, that's what I think. I just picture us in that place, just this delight, it's deeply subversive to a culture that says, produce, 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 consume, consume, consume. A people who just said, uh -uh, delight today, play today. Um, Walter Brueggemann says that Sabbath is withdrawal from the anxiety system of Pharaoh. The refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption and the endless pursuit of private well-being. I think that's right. And then along with that rhythm, every seven days Sabbath, there was seven times a year they had these big festivals where they stopped working and they just got together and ate, ate and drank and danced and sang and had a good time. And especially all of them were revolved around some element of their history. There's a story that they would tell. 
with each of the festivals. So Passover was telling the story of Exodus. The unleavened bread was about harvest and the God who um, masters nature. Um, The first fruits, same thing. We're going to have bread for the coming year. Pentecost was to celebrate the giving of the Jewish law. Um, Trumpets was a a whole long thing. It's like their own little jazz fest telling a a story of a victory in battle. Um, Yom Kippur telling the story of God's forgiveness, right? And the communal aspect of it. The Festival of Booths was um, retelling the the time in the wilderness, right? And they all went camping in their own front yard, basically, for a week, just for the fun of it. And, and so they did this seven times a year. They would just stop all their normal life, and for a few days, if not a whole week, they would kind of remember and reenact some part of their story, their history. And the whole thing was just kind of cheeky. It was like playful by design. And, and, and this was to be wired to their schedule. Every seven days, you take a Sabbath, seven times a year, that's a lot. Seven weeks a year, stop working, tell stories, feast, have fun, just delight in your lives. These are the rhythms of of joyful play that mark a holy people and that remove slavery from their imaginations and replace it with this sense of belovedness and that they're part of a, a story that's going somewhere, right? And I, I just think we still need to learn these things. And we start with Sabbath keeping. And, and I think the other one is just paying close attention to our own observance of, of the church calendar. We can do this. Okay, last thing is the importance of economic and social justice. If I wish we had more time. We could go forever. And Leviticus 25 is so great. But in essence, according to the Jewish calendar... Every seven days there's Sabbath. Um, Every, like seven times a year they had the festivals. Every seven years there was to be a sabbatical year where they just didn't plant the fields. They went fallow. And every seven sets of seven years in the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And so every 50 years, basically once in most people's lifetime, on the Day of Atonement, all the debts were canceled in Israel. All slaves were set free. All property that had changed hands was restored to the ancestral family. I mean, Jubilee meant just they hit reset on the entire economy. 50 years, there could be kind of winners and losers in their economy, but every 50 years, kind of once in a lifetime, there was a Jubilee, and everyone was restored to this same level to, or closer to it, to a place of viability full participation in this group of people who are trying to image something here, trying to be holy. So all can flourish as intended, and nobody's permanently left behind. I mean, think about this. This this meant that they were supposed to organize their economy in such a way that, that there would be no permanent elite and no permanent underclass. Like generational wealth that came, especially at the expense of clan or family, would be tempered and shared every so often. I mean, people today are freaking out about forgiving a few student loans. Can you imagine if we did Jubilee? They would, like, lose their minds if we tried something like this. But kind of the wisdom of this is God's people are supposed to have this default setting, this bias toward an almost reckless generosity 
Our wealth is not for personal aggrandizement or, or you know, to make us feel like we're producing, consuming really well and therefore more virtuous. It's for taking care of one another. It's for the community. And you can really see in all these, the spirit of generosity, of communal care and social concern with all of, all of these holiness codes, really throughout the whole thing. Just holding up the values of family and neighboring, play and delight, economic and, and, and social justice. And they all require a generous community. It's a big part of what it means to be holy. Part of the wisdom in, embedded in the holiness code is just this recognition that things like our time, our schedule, things like our money or, or wealth, they tell us where our loyalties lie. They're very revealing. I mean, you know, want to know who's the God in your life? Look at your calendar. Look at your cash flow. Look at your community. They all start with C's. I was very proud of this. <laughs> so you can remember. Calendar, cash flow, community. These tell you what your God is. They tell you what kind of person you're becoming. They tell you what kind of community you belong to. Right? Who you love, who your God is. And the idea of Leviticus is, look, you can't just like decide to be better at this stuff. You have to start with practices that you suck at in the beginning. You write the first check and you hate it. It's horrible. And then it changes somewhere along the line. And every habit is like this. So there, you, you wire these values, and this is what they're doing in Leviticus, to your daily rhythms, your weekly, monthly, yearly rhythms, to your the, just the normal way that you interact one with another. And these things are calendar. Your calendar is not neutral. It is shaping you, making you more free or tying you up in chains. The, the way you manage your cash is not neutral. It is shaping who you are becoming. Supercharged. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is. It's powerful. The way we structure our community, those we exclude, those we embrace, how we treat those on the margins, it's not neutral. It is helping us become image bearers or making us just like everyone else. And, and the way that you manage that is not with you know, big religious zealotry, or big events where everybody cries and comes to Jesus. It's your habits. What do we do? How do I spend my life? What do I do with my calendar, my cash flow, my community? That's it. This is the wisdom that's embedded in, in Leviticus. And it's saying these things, your family, your neighboring, you play and delight, economic and social justice, these things need to be reflected in your patterns of living. Because when, when they are, then our lives come to bear witness to the reality of this God who just wants to live in friendship with humanity and to help us organize the world in such a way that everybody has enough and everybody can be who they are and not be afraid. Come out of hiding and flourish and be whole, experience shalom, right? This is what God is after. And the place to look is not, you know, what, what we say we believe. 
so much as it is in what we actually do in our lives that matters. Not so we can be pious and holy because individuals' holiness is kind of off the tables for us. It's more so we can be part of this group that really in our common life we image God. This is what we're after at Redemption Church. We are chasing this um, and we'll never stop chasing it. Uh, Let's pray. We've been doing exercises in Leviticus, and this will be our last one. I just want you to kind of think about your own life. And I'm going to read these words, and I just want you to see what word, when you hear it, what word sticks out to you as something that might be lacking in your life. That's what you're looking for. I'm going to say six words. Family, neighboring, play, delight, economic justice, social justice. Which one of those stuck out to you? Maybe just hold that, that word in your chest. And then the task for this week is to just hold that word and Think about one practice, one habit that you could chase that would raise the value of that thing. Family, neighboring, play, delight, economic justice or social justice. Lord, we give you thanks for the book of Vaikra, Leviticus, and for all it has meant to us. And thank you for the chance to study it together. Pray that it would continue to bear fruit in our lives. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The reason we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after he had given thanks for it, he passed it around and all of his, his disciples ate of the same loaf. And then he did the same thing with a single cup after supper. supper. Um, he said, this, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And he said, every time we get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. And kind of the idea in our tradition is that we, in the middle of a church meeting, which is kind of funny, we, have, we share this common meal. Everybody gets a a bite. And the symbolism is we're, we're part of a group, not just individuals. We're part of this body. This meal makes us one family. But we're symbolically receiving Christ into our bodies and then being trying to be made of the stuff he's made out and then go out in, into the world to be salt and light and bear God's image and, and preach with our lives the idea that this God loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. So that's why we do communion. And so we invite everybody to take part in this and um, to, to receive that, that same life and to be made of that same life as one body. That's the idea. So if you would join me and let's pray a blessing on the table. Lord, we give you thanks for this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace a spiritual food and drink 
And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore.